Uh, Steve mentioned my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the <clears throat> pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, I know it seems like we're having church at night <laughs> because it's so dark outside, but I assure you uh, your clock is, is right. It's a.m., not p.m. Um, but praise God for the rain. Uh, we've needed it, and uh, I don't want to complain about it. We're in the middle of a series called David and David's Son. In your worship folder, you should have a little insert. And on one side is the passage, on the other side is an outline. I want to take a few moments and read 2 Samuel chapter 6 to you. Uh, You'll see it there on the, the front side. And what we've been looking at the past few weeks in David and David's Son is the life of King David and how in him we see his greater son, Uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, And we've taken a look at a number of things, the way that he interacted with Saul, the way that he was anointed king, uh, or excuse me, picked uh, by the prophet Samuel, Uh, and seen ourselves in a number of ways, uh, our sin, but also the beauty and the glory of the gospel. And I, I hope this morning to do the same thing as we look at this story of the ark. So let me read 2 Samuel 6, if you want to follow along, it'll be on the screen behind me as well as in your worship folder or in your Bible. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is therefore called Perez-Uzzah, because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. But as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered their burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when he had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. 
and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, As I said, we've been looking at David and David's son. That's the series uh, title. And the life of David and what we can learn from him. But not only that, but what we see of Jesus uh, through his life. And how really the life of David points us to the gospel. I want to give you some background first before we get into this passage. Because some of you may be new to the Bible or, or a little unfamiliar with it. And some of you may remember uh, some stuff about the ark, but not everything about it. And uh, it's important because the story of the ark goes back to the book of Exodus where Moses instructed Israel to build the ark. And really all the ark is in Hebrew is a chest. I mean, that's what the word means, what the word comes from. And it did a couple of things. It carried the tablets that the Ten Commandments were uh, etched on. It carried the staff of Aaron that had budded in the wilderness, and it carried an urn holding manna, again, from the wilderness. And the ark was housed in the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting, uh, and Moses was instructed to set up the tabernacle with a couple of curtains, uh, a curtain where you first entered that would be kind of the initial curtain, a time for you to uh, prepare yourself and, and, and worship. But then there was a second curtain, It was called the most holy place, and only the high priest once a year could enter there to atone for his sins and for the sins of the people. Uh, Consequently, just this past week, uh, the Jewish calendar celebrates this day uh, called Yom Kippur. Uh, That was the day the high priest entered into the most holy place once a year. He slaughtered a bull, and he put the blood on top of the ark, And on top of the ark was this thing called the mercy seat. And there were two cherubim of gold that were uh, constructed to sit on top of the ark. And in between them was this this mercy seat, this little kind of offering bowl. And the Israelites were to see the ark as the footstool of the Lord. It was where his presence rested on the earth. It, It symbolized the power of God, the presence of God with his people. Think about what's in the ark it was carrying the things that reminded the nation of how God had delivered them, how he had saved them, provided for them, how he had been with them. And they had literally seen his salvation through Aaron's staff budding, through God providing the manna, and so forth. But the ark wasn't a piece of memorabilia. It was a display of what continued to go on. God was present with his people. He continued to act on their behalf. And David consequently realized how badly he needed the presence of God in his life, and so he sends for the ark. 
So to back up just a little bit, about 30 years back in 1 Samuel, about 30 years prior to the chapter we're in now, the Philistines had captured the ark. They wanted its power for their own. And so in 1 Samuel, uh, they, they capture the ark. They take it back to their temple with their god, Dagon. And some of you may recall the story, how they take it in there. Uh, and they come the next day, and, and the, the statue of Dagon is, is broken in pieces and is face down before the ark. And it really weirded the Philistines out. So they moved it from there, and every city they took it to, the people would be inflicted with with boils and with tumors. Uh, And so they decided eventually, we've got to get rid of this thing. And so they put it on a cart, uh, and they basically sent the the oxen out from their city, and they said, wherever it ends up going, we hope it ends up landing in Israel because we can't take it anymore. Uh, some of you might remember, the when I, when I say the word Ark, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark comes to mind. At least it did for me, uh, whenever I read this passage. And my favorite scene in the whole movie, uh, partly because I, I have a, a gross sense of humor, is the end, uh, where the Nazis have finally accomplished their whole mission. You know, Indiana Jones is on this... Uh, on this mission of, of saving the ark from the wicked Nazis who want it for their own, uh, because as as uh, as his assistant recounts in the movie, in history, the army who had the ark of God in front of it could could accomplish anything, could conquer anyone, and so the Nazis take it to this uh, secret location, to this island, and Indiana Jones ends up getting there, and they 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 set it up, and they've got this French archaeologist working for him, and the the, the climax of the story is. He says all these weird incantations, and they open up the ark, or excuse me, I guess the power of God comes from on high and blows the top of the ark off, and then there's this weird scene, and all the Nazis end up melting. It's great. <laughs> the, the wicked pay the price for messing with God, and that's, that's the message, really. It's funny that, you know, uh, non-Christians made that movie, but what they were tapping into was this historical consciousness in I think the entire world, that the Ark of the Hebrews was not something to be trifled with. You don't mess with God. The the Nazis thought that it was magical, as did the Philistines. But God's power wasn't nicely packaged for your need, and you could tap into it whenever you wanted to. As fictional as the story was, the principles that it highlighted were accurate. So as we come to this passage this morning, I want to look at three things You'll see them there on the opposite side of your insert. Three things. First, I want to look at Uzzah. And then I want to look at David. And really see the contrast between Uzzah and between David. And then how this passage points us to the work of Jesus Christ. And how we can learn to dance in our lives like David. But only out of an experience of the gospel. Because it's only the gospel that produces the kind of dancing in our lives, and you might say at times literally uh, that we see David doing here. So first, Uzzah, why did he die? What does this death teach us about how we are prone to often treat God? Well, I want to say this. First of all, let's be honest. These are the kind of passages, again, if you're here, you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, or maybe not even consider yourself a Christian, uh, you might read this passage and It might make you very nervous. I mean, wow, that seems kind of harsh. I mean, the guy just reached out to try and touch this thing and 
keep it out of the dirt and he gets struck down right on the spot? Seems kind of extreme. But I hope that the death of Uzzah makes more sense as we go further along. Because as we sang in the song earlier, you're, you're not a God created by human hands. Or dependent on, on mortal man or, or anything that we can do. And, and, and I love the last line, you're God, that's it's just the way it is. And so you tell us what to do, you boss us around, we don't boss you around. And so just the... Just the reality of that is something that I think we have to come very very reverently, very humbly, very soberly to as we look at this passage. Along with the ark came lots of rules and lots of regulations. Let me give you a couple of them. Uh, it was to be carried by the Levites. This, again, this is all legislation laid down by God through Moses when the Israelites initially got or were told to build the ark. <clears throat> the descendants of Aaron's sons were the only ones who were supposed to be carrying it. It was to be carried on poles. It had hoops, one uh, at the two, uh, two at the front and two at the back, and they were to run poles through those hoops, and four men were supposed to carry it on their shoulders. It was to be covered as it was moved, and it was never to be touched. But what you see happening in 2 Samuel 6, again, 30 years the ark has been sitting in the house of Abinadab, because that's where it eventually ended up in, in 1 Samuel. And as David sends for it, it's not being carried by Levites. It's not being carried on the poles. It's being put on an ox cart, which was kind of a leftover from what the Philistines did with it. The men guiding on it on the cart, they were walking beside it. They were not holding on to it. And it was uncovered. So why Uzzah? Why was it Uzzah who struck dead? Because presumably, others had touched the ark prior to him in order to get it on the new cart out of the house of of Abinadab. There were others who were participating in the whole act, which was completely careless and complete disregard for the rules that God had put in place. But I want to say this, Uzzah was struck dead not so much because he broke the rules, but because of his presumption that the earth's soil was more defiling to God's holiness than his touch. He he didn't understand, my touch is more sinful than the dirt. My touch is more defiling to God than the dirt. And I will tell you this, his death was years in the making. This was the result of a lifetime, of a habit, of a reflex of trying to manage God. He's a person who has God in the box, or in a box, let me say. And he officially takes responsibility for keeping him safe from the mud and the dust of the world. And if we're honest, we're all prone to treating God in the same fashion. We do everything right. We try and manage our life in such a way that we can maintain control over everything. Ourselves, our lives, our jobs, and even God himself. And what Uzzah does is he points us here to the danger of religion. Of being good and moral and eventually trying to work God into your debt, which is right where you want him anyway, because he's easier to control. The problem is, rather than worshiping and serving God, the personal, living creator, we end up worshiping and serving ourselves. Or we end up putting him in a box. And so he's, he's inanimate 
He's impersonal. I mean, it was, after all, a chest. And this man sees it falling. He goes to rescue it, pick it up. Rather than to be in awe and fear the presence of the one that this ark represents, who's put this ark into existence in the first place, who's put the nation of Israel in existence in the first place. Because after all, in the box, when you have God there managing him, nice packaged box, he's under your thumb. You don't need him to care for you because you've got it handled. And as we read here, religion will kill you. After a life of working to please and control God through your good behavior, you'll be dead. Listen to Jesus Matthew 23, verse 27. He's describing some of the most religious, most moral, most put-together people who've ever lived on the face of this earth. And he says, they are like whitewashed tombs, full of dead men's bones. And so as you see Uzzah walking along with this ark, he's put together, he's, he, he's, he's proper. He's got everything... Uh, correct, and yet on the inside, uh, he's full of dead, lifeless religion. Uzzah's physical death is a picture of what religion does to our hearts and our lives when we relate to God in this way. So again, it's not so much that he disobeys the rules that Uzzah is struck dead, but his presumption that his touch will not defile the ark, in the same way that the mud of the earth will. And and that's frightening. It's frightening to, to look at our own lives and see how it is we tend to treat God and we tend to relate to God the same way. But it's also frightening to see how in this particular instance, God treats this man who relates to him in that fashion. And so it's a warning to us. But not only Uzzah, David. You've got to look at David in this passage too. Contrast David, whose reaction to the ark is very different. And I'll be the first to admit, uh, and again, if, you, if you're new to the Bible, uh, maybe haven't read Second Samuel, First Samuel, these stories in a long time, you forgot what David does here. I'll be the first to admit I have trouble relating to David in this passage. After all, I mean, you don't think of me, those of you who, who know me, those of you who don't know me, trust me, uh, I, I, I'm not Mr. Excited. You know, you've seen those little, uh, those little cartoons of, you know, Miss Grumpy, uh, Mr. This, Miss That, and we, we actually have a, you know, how am I feeling today? We've got a little magnet on our fridge, and you can move it around. I think it's permanently on Mr. Grumpy, and we need to do something about that. Uh, dancing at all is pretty difficult for me. Not pretty difficult. It's impossible. Uh, However, uh, I did have one experience uh, in 2002 where I was on a field outside of Dallas, Texas with about 20,000 college students. And I danced. I danced to a song uh, by a, a guy named David Crowder that comes right out, funny enough, this passage. And he, he sung a song 
from verse 22 uh, about David's response to Michael, who despises his freedom to dance and his joy in the Lord in that moment. And he says, I will dance, I will sing to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is hindering this passion in my soul. And I'll become even more undignified than this. Some might say it's foolishness. And so, as I look back, if I could, you know, teleport up to look at myself in that moment, even thinking about it right now, gosh, I must have looked like an idiot. But there were 20,000 other idiots right around me. And it was great. It was great. It was a life-changing experience. Granted, most of you have never seen me dance before. Probably can't even, I can't even believe that that story's true. Uh, but it is. Uh, and, and it helps me to relate to David a bit here. And if you've had a similar experience where you have just been overwhelmed by the majesty, by the power, by the work of God, for you personally, you cannot help but do it. But I want to come back to the passage for a minute because it's striking. Not only is someone in this passage dancing with all his might. I mean, what's that like exactly? To dance with all your might. And I'm here to tell you, I did that night. Because I woke up the next morning sore. Why are you sore, Jonathan? I danced last night. Not at a club, but at a worship service. David is dancing. It is the king himself who's dancing. He's modeling for his people. He's modeling for us what worship is. He's absolutely over the moon that God's presence is coming to him. It is the symbol of the Lord's rule and the Lord's reign that is coming into the city because David finally, he's getting what he's longed for. He realizes, wow, I'm crowned king of Israel. I need the king or else I'm not going to be able to rule like I should. This entire scene, I mean, just picture it for a second. It's an entire scene of flourishing. The rightful king is being honored. The people are rejoicing. They have peace on all sides. All is as it should be in this particular moment. And that's why you see David responding the way he does. But get this for a second. In ancient cultures, it would have been very uncommon to see the king act like this. Any king. And yet Moses promised the nation back in the book of Deuteronomy, one day they would have a king who would love and obey the law because he loved the lawgiver. David is putting himself on display, not to impress the people, but because he is a servant of the the Lord himself, the king of kings. And his act of worship shows his heart is not lifted up above his brothers. He's humble. He's one of them. I mean, he's dancing around with the slave girls. Kings did not do that. A, they didn't dance. That's shaming yourself. Michael's got a point. But at the same time, he's not dancing in his palace. He's on the street next to the slave girls. Not even the slave boys, the slave girls. I mean, the lowest of the lowest of the lowest society. Michael's reaction to David's dancing, I think is important to mention just briefly. Here comes the procession into the city. The king is dancing a jig on the street next to the slaves, and the text says this. Look at verse 16. 
Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and she saw King David leaping, done that, and dancing before the Lord. And she what? She despised him. She despised him. Why? Well, I think the answer is in verse 20. Jump down to verse 20 for just a minute and let me summarize it this way. She's convinced that David is not acting like a king. He's not stately, he's not composed, he's not regal. He's uncovering himself in front of everyone. And she's embarrassed and appalled by his actions. Problem was, Michael's approach to God was one of, of political coziness. He, he, as long as he was in her corner, she was good. In fact, uh, national opinion polls would be in her favor as well. She, she, she was enslaved to social norms. She was also enslaved to what the nation thought about those in leadership. And so you see David leading in a way that Moses promised the one that the king would eventually lead. But as a result, she couldn't dance. Had all that stuff not mattered to her, she might have been busting a move right there next to David. But she was enslaved. In fact, I think her real problem was envy. Drew talked about it a few weeks ago. She can't rejoice with David. Here she's over here weeping, so to speak. She's mad. She's despising him. She hates him because he's rejoicing. She's too concerned with what he looks like or with what others might think of him. Her sin ultimately keeps her from celebrating not just the king, but the king. And she eventually dies too. Look at verse 23. She had no children from that point on. Which in this culture, uh, and ladies, you might remember the very first sermon of the series, Drew talked about Hannah being barren. This, th- that was death. And so Uzzah dies. Michael comes to eventually die. But we've got to ask the question here. Because David's response is so very different. Why does he dance? Where does he find the freedom to dance? And I think the answer is in his question of verse 9. Right in the middle of the passage. He asks this question. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Understanding why he danced, as well as the source of his freedom to dance, is going to help us see the gospel in this passage. So the question he asks there how can the ark of the Lord come to me is a result of seeing Uzzah killed by God right on the spot. Two things become apparent to David in that moment. God is holy and takes sin very, very seriously. If Uzzah can be struck dead, why not me? How is it possible for him to take possession of the ark in light of what he's just witnessed? That's kind of the the crisis of faith that he's coming to. He's asking the question for every human who's ever lived. And that's this, how can I experience the presence of God in all its fullness in my life? How do I get it? If it's not the question you've asked, you should be asking that. But that question assumes there's a barrier between God and humanity. David instantly stops the procession, send that thing away. We've got to figure something out here. And the Bible teaches us that a barrier, the barrier, is a result of our sin. It's why there was a curtain separating the holiest place, the most holy place of the tabernacle, where the ark was located, from the rest of the tent. 
God wanted the Israelites to physically experience and understand the separation that existed spiritually to a much greater degree. There isn't just a curtain separating you and I from God. The Bible says there's a chasm, something like the great, uh, the Grand Canyon uh, magnified like a million times. How do we get across? Something has to bridge the chasm between us and God. And the Bible's very clear. You and I will never want to, nor can we, get back across to Him. Something has to come to bridge that gap between our sinful, rebellious state and the absolute beauty and purity of God's holiness and God's justice. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're considering Christianity, we believe only one thing can bridge the gap between God and humanity, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, I've got a a graphic here that uh, Susan's going to put up just to illustrate what it is that I'm talking about here. Uh, And you'll see there, the point at which you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that God is holy and just, which is the top arrow, continues to increase. You continue to, to get a sense of how holy He really is, which was the crisis David faced at that moment. How can I have the ark of God come to me when God is that holy, and yet I'm that sinful? And so the bottom line which you'll see is slowly increasing as well, is a growing sense of your sinfulness, my sinfulness. What is the, bri- what is the gap? Or excuse me, what bridges that gap? And you see it there. It's the cross. And so David comes to see how absolutely holy God is and yet how absolutely sinful he is and look toward the right side of the chart, you'll see how big the cross is. And if your cross, if Jesus is that big, if he's that big of a savior, would you not be dancing too? Now it gives you an idea. Through faith in Jesus, the presence of God in all its fullness can come into your life. When we experience the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ took our sins, and in return, we get his perfect record by faith. Our joy is increased by that realization And that appreciation of what Jesus did, by faith we can now enter into the full presence of God. No ark needed, no curtains, because our Savior bridged the gap. Instead of me being killed because of my sin, Jesus was killed because of my sin. You and I do not ever have to go through an Uzzah-type experience again. Because of Jesus, the curtain's been torn down. And when you experience that in the deepest parts of your soul, your joy will be so overwhelming that you won't be able to contain yourself. You will dance like David. And you won't care what other people think because you have the smile and the pleasure of God resting over your life like David. You see, David realized in Uzzah's death how holy and unapproachable God is. And so prior to the ark actually entering the city of Jerusalem, he makes a sacrifice. Look at verse 13. He goes and gets the ark after three months. And when those who had bore the ark had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. He makes the sacrifice, and then he dances. 
When he knows his sins are atoned for, once the sacrifice is offered, he's free to celebrate and rejoice. Susan, thanks. You can take that down. Why does he dance? Why does he dance? Because he knows, number one, how desperately sinful he is, and yet, number two, how extravagantly gracious God is. To know, to, to, to really taste these two truths is to dance the dance of life in such a way that we're free from the concerns of somebody like Uzzah, of trying to do everything right so we can put God in our debt and manage him and keep him in a box. But it also frees us from the fear of other people and their opinions, from caring so much because we're enslaved to people-pleasing, which ends up making us hate those who dance like Michael in this passage. So let me finish with this question. Where are you in this story? Where are you? Are you more like Uzzah? Religious? Walking along through life, stoic, proper, comfortable, careful? Dead? Or are you more like David? Changed by the gospel, leaping for joy, dancing through life, praising, careless in the care of God? Who are you more like? Let's pray as we finish and ask God to make us a people like David and that that would spill over, that joy, that experience of of the gospel would spill over out of our lives into our community and ultimately to our world. Lord Jesus, we do thank you and marvel that you would come uh, and spill your blood for sinners like us, uh, that you would die for your, for your, even your enemies. Uh, but we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have not only died the death that we deserve, but you lived the life that we should have lived. And by faith, you give us your perfect record. And an experience of that freedom that we now have to serve you, to obey you, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. That freedom, Jesus, make, make, it, make it cause us to dance. Give us lives that are so full and so overflowing. A, 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 a picture of what we see in this passage with King David that others in our community might see, that we might have opportunity to share the source of that joy. And that ultimately, our community and our world would be changed by that same joy present through the gospel and the gospel alone. Come and work, we pray, and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Amen. If you're wondering, how how, how can I be more, become more like David uh, rather than Uzzah? Uh, Or if the experience of David you see in this passage is just so absolutely foreign to you, uh, then... Maybe the gospel, maybe the sweetness of what we just sang has not come home to your heart, the very depths of your soul. Uh, And so as I send you with this benediction, uh, our prayer for you, my prayer for you, uh, is that you'd go confident, uh, if your faith and your hope are in the Lord Jesus Christ, that increasingly you will taste that. Increasingly your your life will become a dance uh, where you're dancing obediently. You're dancing in response to what's been done for you. Uh, And if not, uh, then pray, come talk to me, come talk to Drew. uh, Talk to a spiritual authority in your life, somebody you trust, uh, and ask them, how can I get there? How can I have that experience like David? 
uh, and I'm sure they'd be happy to lead you uh, to Jesus' mighty work of salvation. So as you go, go knowing he's for you, and he promises to, to go with you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.